Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. The race to find a vaccine. We just need to back lots of horses at the moment and to make sure we're in a great position to access a vaccine when it occurs. Wuhan revises its death toll. More than 1,200 deaths and 325 cases have been added to the grim tolls in Wuhan alone. And how the 5G conspiracy took hold. This is Coronavirus, the latest from The Telegraph. I'm Theodora Leloudis. The government has set up a vaccine task force to supercharge efforts to immunise against the coronavirus. Led by the chief scientific advisor and the deputy chief medical officer, it'll support institutions working on vaccine development. It came as a former World Health Organisation director warned Britain may face the worst death rates in Europe because it was too slow to respond to the threat. On Friday, a further 847 deaths were reported in UK hospitals, bringing the total death toll to over 14,500. And today, Business Secretary Alok Sharma announced £14 million funding to the Vaccine Task Force to add to the existing pledge of £250 million. But The Telegraph's global health security correspondent Sarah Newey says developing a safe and effective vaccine is an immense task. It normally takes at least five years to develop a new vaccine. Although, of course, the scenario we're in right now is anything but normal. And so experts across the world are working around the clock to accelerate that process. There are currently around 115 vaccine candidates being developed, and at least five teams have already started clinical trials. So when are we likely to have that safe, effective coronavirus vaccine we all want and need? Well, it sounds like a simple question, but unfortunately the answer is anything but. The first thing to note is that the time frame varies depending on what you mean by having an immunisation ready. Are you referring to the moment when a vaccine candidate has been proven as safe and effective in clinical trials? Or are you talking about the point at which a vaccine has been manufactured and deployed to the public on a large scale? It's an important distinction. Experts have said that, in a best-case scenario, a vaccine could pass through the three stages of clinical trials within a few months, so that we have a product that is confirmed as safe and effective by the summer. For instance, Professor Sarah Gilbert and her team at Oxford University said at the weekend that their vaccine could be ready within months, possibly as early as June. Yet even if this vaccine is ready by the summer, major barriers will remain in terms of regulatory approval and manufacturing. Never before have vaccines been manufactured at the scale we now need. And remember that there are more than 100 candidates currently being developed, so we don't yet know which will be the most effective. And each of these vaccines works slightly differently. Therefore, it will require slightly different manufacturing facilities. What's more, mass-producing immunisations requires global collaboration. Most G20 countries, for example, do not have manufacturing capability. This all means that there will be a time lag between the moment that we have a vaccine and the moment that we can mass-produce that vaccine. So although we see major breakthroughs every week, it's likely that we'll be at least 12 to 18 months before a vaccine is really ready and widely available. 
Authorities in the Chinese city of Wuhan, where the coronavirus originated, have raised the official death toll by 50%. It puts the total number of fatalities at just under 4,000. They also added more than 300 further cases to their total in a series of retrospective revisions to the numbers. Officials say the changes are down to overwhelmed hospitals, meaning some people died at home, as well as delayed reports about infections and fatalities. The revisions are likely likely to seed further doubt about the accuracy of figures reported by the Chinese government, already in question by officials in the US and the UK. The Telegraph's China correspondent Sophia Yan reports from Wuhan. Concerns have long persisted over the numbers, particularly because of multiple revisions on how China was counting cases. This latest change only seeds further doubt. People in Wuhan absolutely feel they don't have the full picture. I've interviewed families who lost loved ones to what doctors strongly hinted was the coronavirus, but they were never tested and thus not included in the official count. It's unclear whether Friday's change captures any of these cases. At a crematorium, a worker told me that at the peak, there were 5,000 bodies waiting to be cremated. Before the pandemic hit, there were about two dozen a day. One taxi driver said to me, the government can't possibly tell the truth to the public, but as long as they know themselves, it's fine. Even with Friday's change to the numbers, and it's a significant one, China's death toll at more than 4,600 still remains low compared to other nations. Fatalities in seven countries, including the U.S. and the U.K., have surpassed that of China. The big question is, what impact did these potentially suppressed numbers have on countries' understanding and emergency preparedness? When Wuhan got locked down in January, China was upset with foreign governments for evacuating citizens, closing borders, cutting flights. Beijing kept saying everything was under control. So did China's actions exacerbate the outbreak? And if so, by how much? Thousands of protesters in Michigan on Wednesday, some carrying rifles, many ignoring social distancing guidance, and all with the aim of ending the lockdown. We're tired of not being able to buy the things that we need, go to the hairdressers, get our hair done. It's time to open up. As the U.S. enters its second month of tight restrictions, protests are also planned in states including Texas, Virginia and Washington. The protesters want to revitalize the U.S. economy. Donald Trump announced a plan to start, in his words, opening up America again as he published guidance for how states can get back to work. It outlines three phases for lifting restrictions, with each state needing to meet certain criteria to progress. The Telegraph's U.S. editor, Ben Riley smith says it's a critical point in the U.S. fight against coronavirus. The focus is now beginning to turn on how to save the U.S. economy. There have been some staggeringly bad unemployment figures in the last couple of weeks. 22 million Americans have claimed unemployment benefit in the last four weeks. And Trump is very aware of the impact that's going to have. He often talks about the fact that that alone will cause deaths, mental health issues, suicides, etc. The second interesting thing is that Trump is handing the power to the governors of the 50 states to make their own calls. Now, they have that power anyway. But at the beginning of the week, Trump was saying, my authority is total. I will get to decide when these states reopen and when they don't. He's really eased back on that. In terms of criticism for the guidelines, it's actually been quite limited. These were written by Trump's scientific advisers. He flagged up the fact that he'd listened to them during his press conference. And they are quite detailed. 
for a state to progress through each of these phases, they have to meet a certain set of strict criteria, what the scientific advisors are calling gating criteria. And essentially they evolve around seeing a reduction in COVID cases over a 14-day period. So you can't just open up businesses, open up restaurants without hitting certain benchmarks. But one big question that has emerged from governors is on testing. There's an argument that says the only way you can really open up the economy is if you have widespread testing, so you know exactly how big the outbreak is. And thus far, America's tested more than 3 million people, which is a lot. This is a country of more than 300 million people, so it remains just a small percentage of the total population. And the political risk for Trump, as his advisers have reportedly been telling him, is that he won't get the blame for the first wave. People accept that this came from China and was an outside force. But he could get the blame for the second wave if he decides to open up and suddenly there's a new surge of COVID cases. But do you know what you're doing now? You're laying 5G? Yeah. You realise that, don't you? Even in these strange times, it's a particularly bizarre encounter. You know when they turn this on, it's going to kill everyone and that's why they're building the hospitals? A video that gained widespread traction on social media of an unnamed woman warning two men laying cables for the 5G mobile network that they're causing coronavirus. It's part of the growing conspiracy theory that the latest generation of wireless technology is making people ill. And today, the EU Commission denounced the theory as disinformation, saying there was no correlation between the deployment of 5G and the outbreak of the virus. But how did this baseless conspiracy take hold? Luke Mintz has the story. The strange idea that 5G is causing coronavirus is thought to have started with an article in the Belgian newspaper back in January in which a doctor was asked whether the new outbreak in Wuhan might have anything to do with the city's 5G phone masts. He actually gave a fairly vague answer, saying basically, we'll have to look at the facts, but it's possible. Those comments were then picked up by conspiracy theorists on sites like YouTube, Facebook, TikTok, who have been posting day after day about the evils of 5G. Some people say it causes coronavirus, Some people say coronavirus is a hoax to cover up the installation of 5G. There's no real consistency to it. And it's important to point out that these claims are totally baseless. Every respected scientist who's asked about this says it's total nonsense. A lot of it is fairly fringe. One of the YouTubers I had the misfortune of having to watch talks about 5G causing coronavirus. And then elsewhere talks about the role of the Illuminati, for example. But over the last few months, it has worryingly become far more mainstream. I'm told that private WhatsApp groups between friends and family have a lot to answer for, as do neighbourhood Facebook groups, some of which have become a hotbed of 5G conspiracism, I'm told. So much so that according to one poll, nearly one in 10 British adults now think there's some kind of link. And over the Easter weekend, there were 20 incidents of phone masts being attacked. And, as our listeners might know, ITV presenter Eamon Holmes got in some hot water this week when he said that we just don't know whether 5G is doing this. He later clarified his comments and says he doesn't think there's any kind of link. It's clear that, as well as testing our health system, the coronavirus pandemic is testing our information system too. 
If you think your Wi-Fi is patchy, spare a thought for two-time Darts World Championship winner Gary Anderson, who's had to pull out of the next big tournament because of his weak internet connection. It's scuppered his chances in the Professional Darts Corporation's inaugural home event that started on Friday evening. It'll see over 100 top players squaring off against each other from their houses using video calls. But Anderson, who told The Sun he even struggles to pay bills online, won't be at the hockey. If your Wi-Fi is up and running, I'm going to put links in the show notes to a couple of pieces I think you might enjoy this weekend. The first is by the man with the best job title at The Telegraph. It's our special correspondent, Harry DeKettville. He's turned his attention to how the pandemic will shape the next generation. It's a gripping piece on childhood in the time of coronavirus. That one's particularly fascinating for parents, I think. And the second is a 15-minute documentary on how the pandemic began. Conspiracy theories have run wild about the origin origins of the new coronavirus. We've covered many of them in this podcast, but my video team colleagues are here to debunk the myths. Plus, it'll tell you everything you need to know about Asian wet markets and why they're allowed to continue. If you haven't already made the very wise decision to become a Telegraph subscriber, you can get your first 30 days free at telegraph.co.uk slash audio. And as a very small token of our gratitude, NHS workers can get the first six months free. Details of how to sign up to that also in the show notes. That's all from me until Monday evening. If you are finding this podcast useful, I'd really appreciate it if you left it a five star rating and a short review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find the show. If you want to get in touch, maybe you have a question or a suggestion of a topic I should be covering, email me. It's coronaviruspodcast at telegraph.co.uk. This is Coronavirus, the latest from The Telegraph. I'm Theodora Leloudis.